So most of you probably already know this, but this is research from a larger project where I'm looking at post-colonial migration uh, to the U.S. and the U.K., and particularly I'm interested in the ways in which new models of disease that emerge in the mid and late 20th century and new kinds of healthcare affect the, these particular groups and the ways in which, in fact, the, the question of empire and imperial identities continue on into the post-colonial period. Now, today I was, as promised in my abstract, going to talk about tuberculosis and rickets, but after all of our wonderful conversations about TB yesterday, I'm going to skim that bit. We can come back to it um, and try and spend more time talking about the question of rickets and the sort of ways in which it fits into models of biochemical and molecular public health, a kind of, what I argue is a kind of different nature of public health in the post-war period. Um, so the overall questions I'd like to look at today are post-colonial migration, who constitutes the public in post-colonial Britain? And there I'm looking at some of the questions that we had yesterday, I mean, are travelers part of the Irish public? Well, for me, of course, it's our South Asian groups, uh, African groups, uh, African Caribbean groups. Are they considered part of the public? Are they part of major public health endeavors? Or is it, in fact, the case that their public health is the public health of the exotic, the tropical, the biochemical, and the elite? Um, and I'll come back to that. Uh, I also want to ask a few questions, and this is an area that I'm still sort of just getting my head around, so I will be looking for help. Thank you very much. Um, what happens to public health in the post-war period? Does it continue? In what, in, in what way is public health a story of continuity? And in what way is it a story of change? As increasing clinical attention is focusing on individual idiosyncrasies, whether those are genetic, molecular, or biochemical, and then, and this again is an area I'm still sort of mulling over, can you say that there are cultural idiosyncrasies or are you necessarily talking about groups there? Is it culture and the individual or is it culture and the group? And again, I feel like this is taking forward some of the themes we developed yesterday. So just to give us a moment's uh, setting for the kinds, of, the kinds of questions that I'm looking at, this is Sylvia Dark, who was, as some of you probably know, the nutritional advisor and chief medical officer in nutrition for the DHSS in the 1970s. Um, and she's talking about some of the presumptions that she and the DHSS arguably is, are using in the period that I'm concerned with. She says, problems can be dealt with either by changes in national policy or locally by area health authorities. Alterations in national policy are in general reserved for problems which affect the national health and which can only be solved by government action. And then she says at the bottom, it's as well to remind ourselves that the public health means the health of 56 million people. 506 Anyway, lots of people. Lots and lots of people, all the people in Britain. <laughs> you know, I did have commas in there, but I took them out because I put them in purely for my own entertainment. Um, so yes, so this is, this is an idea of public health as the largest possible public, a public that can only be affected by the central government. And the presumption is everyone else should be addressed, ameliorated, aided in local ways. Now, as I said, I'm only going to very briefly touch on this, but in a, in a, in a way, giving us a status quo ante to the mass migration that begins in the 50s and carries on into the 70s, I thought I would just mention the tuberculosis campaign of 1957 in Glasgow. So just to give us an idea, this is, this is a huge effort. This is an idea of addressing a mass public, but an indigenous public. So 37 MMR units, intense media coverage across the spectrum 
a weekly prize raffle giving away cars and you know, trips away, you know, really great stuff in 1957, well, quite nice now. Uh, and the result of it was 715,000 screenings. Uh, and as you can see on the last day, the picture in, uh, that's up there is of queues trying to get their last screening in. Now, I don't know if you can see it in the picture as it is up there, but they are, of course, all white. Now, by, t- by 1957, Glasgow was not. So one of the questions that is unanswered in treatments of the 1957 survey that, that do exist now in the literature, and there aren't very many of them, um, is uh, whether the small ethnic populations that were moving into Glasgow at this point were included or whether they responded to this at all. Studies from around the same period in Birmingham and in Manchester produced evidence that was considered by the DHSS to reveal that these kinds of efforts didn't work with immigrants because they were too suspicious of government and they wouldn't respond to the same moral civic drives that affected the majority population. So already there's a sort of, scrutiny, uh, sort of separation. The, the, uh, the, the new populations don't have the same sense of civic responsibility or the same response to biomedicine that the established populations do. Therefore, they cannot be expected to be a part of that public, of the public health. So one of the other points I want to make is, and this is, this is going to be the case for, for two of the conditions in my overall study, is that there's an idea of, of public health as greatly improving and, and indeed as becoming you know, better than well in some regards. So just a, just a quotation of the official optimism that TB was, was provoking in the 1950s. And I particularly like in this, it's, a, it's, the, it's Thompson to read in the Ministry of Health in 1955. Rather like goading the Gadarian swine to go ever faster in their mad rush downhill to self-destruction is his view of encouraging the chest clinics to be more and more uh, productive that eventually they're going, to, they're going to wipe out the need for themselves. But then I doubt if the directors, any more than the swine, appreciate how imminent may be their demise. So there's a real sense that tuberculosis will be the next to go, and it will go soon. Obviously, we know that that was a somewhat mistaken optimism. And obviously also by 1960, so did the Ministry of Health and the public. Now, I'm going to come back to this quotation. I just seed it into your minds now. This is a a set of interviews that were done on the home service that I've extracted from the Listener magazine where where uh, essays about them were published. In 1965, it was a survey by an American um, sociologist come over to study race in Britain. And it's very amusing. She talks a bit about um, how much hostility she meets from the idea that she, an American, has the gall to come over and talk about race in Britain, given the virtual apartheid that's still in place in the Jim Crow South. Um, So one of the the things she does is she goes to talk to immigrants and say, is there a color bar? British people say there's no color bar. What do these populations say? Is there color prejudice? And she gives this wonderful quotation. The difference here is that prejudice is rooted in reason. When people say they're taking our jobs and they're dirtying our streets and they're bringing TB into the country, it's because they are. Now, she's talking about her own population and the African-Caribbean population at this point. It's because they are. That's not prejudice. It's xenophobia. And I'd like to come back at the end and consider this quotation with you. Okay, so again, a status quo ante. How did we handle rickets before it became Asian rickets? Um, and so we look at the strategy that were used to essentially eradicate the English disease from the British population during World War II. And of course, most of this will be a familiar story for this audience. But 
obviously rationing was a, a very serious effort to control the diet of the nation, not just for the expediency of the war effort, though of course that was important, but also to overall improve and protect health. And part of that was to protect maternal and child health in very specific ways. So our, our mum and her two little children, you can see that they're holding bottles next to them. Those, in this case, are, are bottles of cod liver oil, which was one of the things with which they were supplementing their diets. And we see again an image on the other side, don't forget babies, cod liver oil and orange juice, because there was a real effort to, to prevent the war from causing greater ill health and indeed to use it as an opportunity to improve British health. So to eradicate rickets in this population, to prevent it from, from recurring, they took a three-pronged strategy. First of all, they enforced, through regulations, the fortification of particular foods. So flour was fortified with calcium, margarine with vitamins D and A, and only high-extraction flour, that is, flour that is brown and contains still most of its sort of vitamins and minerals, was allowed to be milled. So they couldn't make any white flour. Um, it also, of course, was an effort to save resources, uh, given the war. National diet was controlled by the government very explicitly via rationing and by the provision of special diets and supplements to the specific affected groups. So expected and nursing mothers, infants, young children, people in hospital, not so much the elderly. They're a population that was in many ways left out of special consideration, as far as I know. Um, and of course, the final effort was to fully integrate nutritional education into the wider propaganda programs of the war. So some of you may have seen you know, Dr. Carrot and uh, Potato Pete as you know, part of this story of how to encourage people to use the resources that were available to eat as healthily as possible. But what I want to emphasize is this is very much a national strategy, top-down, absolutely controlling diet and making the decisions for the public. This is, it is health education, but not as we know it. So what happened? Well, we begin to get in the late 60s and, and well, even in the very, very late 50s, um, a few reports of what's called the Asian problem or Asian rickets. Um, and this is an image from a 1979 study that was done on behalf of the DHSS to assess the problem. Now, there are two things happening in this image that I just want to comment on. The first is rickets as we would recognize it. So, obviously, this is radiographic rickets. You would see it, you can see the deformity, um, you can tell that that's part of the problem. On the other side is a new category of rickets that only emerges with the uh, biochemical metabolic studies of the post-war period. It's biochemical rickets, where particular factors are assessed uh, as being absent. There's no clinical sign at this stage. Right? Now, this created a certain amount of kerfuffle, because first of all, it takes rickets away from uh, the management of public health in that it's no longer a visible sign that you can see in schools, that you can report. Um, it's not something that a GP would necessarily see. It has to be diagnosed by uh, biochemically trained experts. And the tests <coughs> are far from simple. You know, it takes a decade to get tests that are usable in a, a general practice setting. So we have a new kind of rickets in a new population, and both of these cause considerable contention. Um, just to give you a sense, they also cause considerable opportunity, particularly for metabolic medicine, which is a growing trend, a growing uh, area of expertise, and a place where Britain in the post-war period strongly feels that it can beat the U.S. And one of the things that I, I found most enjoyable in this research is the backroom bickering 
amongst uh, different specialties, trying to say, well, we can, we can beat the U.S. here. Maybe it'll be a metabolic medicine. Maybe it will be genetic medicine. These are the areas where the NHS gives us an advantage, and the, the reduced racial tension gives us an advantage over the United States in my particular cases. So Charles Dent, a uh, very well-known um, and, and elite uh, metabolic clinician, but a clinician as well. He is practicing medicine on the wards. He's not just in the laboratory. Um, is complaining in 1956 that he thinks he's found a treatment for one of the new chronic diseases that emerges. These are various kinds of rickets that don't come from nutritional deficit, but that come from uh, various metabolic problems. Um, but he can't test it properly because he can't test it in a normal population. Because in Britain, there is no normal population that has rickets. So he talks about uh, this, it's, it's alleged reputation of this particular therapy to heal true rickets. I therefore began to organize a trial as soon as the opportunity arose. Below, you'll see that the opportunity didn't arise until 1960, when a Turkish Cypriot population in London also begins to show signs of rickets. And he begins to notice that amongst a handful of African Caribbeans and amongst a growing number of Asians, this proper nutritional rickets is available on which he can test the metabolic treatments he developed for the normal British population who have these genetic and biochemical disorders. Um, curiously enough, we see it, rickets, much more often in visiting immigrants from backward countries. What are the official responses to Asian rickets? Well, of course, the press is horrified. And we see quite a lot of printed coverage of this problem of rickets returning, the Victorian disease of darkened cities, etc., etc. The, the rhetoric will probably be familiar to you. But inside the DHSS, you have uh, a certain, I wouldn't say contempt, but a certain dismissive attitude toward it. This is not a big problem. We don't want to be pressured into taking any rapid action. Um, and he says, really, people are just all upset about it it's a, because it's a sign of social regression. And to a certain extent in my research, I think that's, he's actually absolutely right. The idea that even with the NHS and even with all the improvements in the health of the British population, it's being dragged backwards by these you know, primitive populations who are suddenly arriving and who don't belong um, is horrified. And you see it again and again also in relation to tuberculosis. We thought we had it nipped it in the bud. Now it's coming back. It's being brought back to us, and it's dragging us backward. Um, and then in the House of Lords, we get another speech on the topic. And in this one is quite interesting because it's specifically questioning the idea of biochemical rickets. It's saying, this isn't a proper disease. That's rubbish. They're not even sick. They don't even have bowed legs. You know, we're going to have it considered, but it's too early to say what, if any, action is needed. <coughs> and this is where you get, you get a, a look into the, the tensions between medical experts for whom these new populations are a wonderful research opportunity and public health for whom they're just a small, rather insignificant burden uh, for which it's not really worth taking any particular, certainly not national action. Again, I won't even go into great detail on this, conscious of time, but we have uh, S.W. Stanbury at Manchester, an entrepreneur in, uh, in biomedicine in various ways, saying, well, we will look into this for you at the DHSS. Sure we will, but we're not doing the medicine. We're only doing the biochemistry, and we're only going to do this research into ethnic populations, uh, which give us a great advantage. You should give us grants because we've got the population here. 
Um, but we're only going to do that research if it also gives us results into metabolic biochemistry. Uh, further pilot examinations could only be done if a byproduct of our clinical examinations were the acquisition of biochemical information relevant to our personal research interests. And this comes up again and again across the diseases I study, including tuberculosis. The chest physicians like Asian tuberculosis because it's not boring old pulmonary stuff. It's interesting skin and bone, you know, stuff you don't normally get to see. Okay, so we're hitting the 1970s. It's a continuing problem. It's not just a problem anymore in Glasgow, which is the first city where it's recognized, but it's in Birmingham, it's in London, and it's increasing and increasing fairly rapidly. The idea of biochemical rickets has essentially been rammed down the throat of the unwilling public health professions as a genuine disease, and there is increasing public pressure to do something about ethnic health. Now, they pick rickets for very specific reasons, um, partly because it is a small problem. Um, you don't want to look at hypertension amongst ethnic minorities. That's, that's everybody. You know, that's, that's more of a national problem. Um, but, but rickets is something that seems more manageable. Nonetheless, the DHSS is extremely anxious not to go down the pathway that worked before. They know that fortification and control of diet did work, but it also produced uh, some problems in the post-war period, especially as overall nutrition moved away from being controlled and back into the hands of the public. Most particularly, an excess of vitamin D um, became a problem. It's a, it will cause mental retardation in small children. And there was great fear about the fact that the government had a policy that you know, produced these effects, and, and in very much greater numbers than in the United States. Again, the comparisons with the US are constantly coming back. Um, so Sylvia, Sylvia Dark again. The replies confirm that the problem of rickets is confined chiefly to Asians in urban areas. And in 1978, another set of reports come in. There is evidence that far from being the English disease, rickets and osteomalacia among young women are now diseases of the tropics and subtropics. There is also evidence that Asian child immigrants sometimes arrive in this country with active rickets and that as Asian people adjust to the conditions of life in Great Britain, the incidence of vitamin D deficiency is declining. And this is where the environment comes in. And by this, I mean not just a physical environment, which, of course, is very problematic for rickets. You need to be outside getting sun. You, it's hard to eat enough vitamin D in a normal diet, much less an Asian, Asian diet. Um, it's, it's hard for anyone to eat that much vitamin D in, in a dietary fashion. It's the sunlight that really allows us to avoid rickets. Uh, so environment is important that way in the very uh, design of the disease, you know, the, the etiology of it. But it's also important in terms of the environment people choose culturally, or that they are arguably choosing culturally. And there was a real sense in the 70s that virtually all of the health problems that were specific to Asians, with the exception of the emerging genetic diseases, were going to be cured by assimilation. And policies, particularly of health education, were very much designed towards that assumption. Now, I wanted to point out one other thing, which is that the new kind of medicine, biochemical rickets being an example, was much more expensive for public health. You need to have what Sylvia Dark calls medical assessment of each individual. In terms of resources, in time and personnel, this type of study is expensive. And not only is it expensive, but in order to do, for example, a true nutritional survey, you have to have people going into the homes, talking with every individual, in the home, you need dietary diets, you need uh, diaries, I should say. It's, it's an extraordinarily time-intensive and, in some ways, personally invasive process 
And it's not something that the DHS has wanted to get back into. On the other hand, the specialists see rickets as a challenging nutritional goal for Britain, but one that is theoretically achievable. Um, you may or may not know that in the United States in the late 70s, there was a, a new nutritional program that emerged of sort of 17 points that would improve American health, obesity being number one, um, dietary issues all the way down the list, and then issues about hypertension, heart failure. They, too, raised the question of rickets amongst particular populations. That's something I haven't found a great deal of evidence about, um, so I haven't put it in here. But this program was seized upon by British nutritionists and other specialists um, across the area to say, look, this is what the U.S. is doing. This is a scheme we could use, too. We could identify the top health problems in Britain, and we can target them. And Trustwell here is arguing that rickets should be targeted because it can be cured. It is a curable disease. It's a disease not only that can be cured, but that was cured. You know, it was eradicated from one population. Why not eradicate it from the rest? So the Department of Health, the Department of Health and Social Services find itself in a bit of a situation. On the one hand, it's getting a lot of pressure for not having given any attention to the health of ethnic populations. And, of course, this is the era of the Race Relations Act, and uh, they've already had many scandals about immigration control. There's a sense that the government needs to do something that shows it's not racist. And as uh, Alison talked about yesterday, this question about race and the squeamishness of the British government to use the languages of race, nationality, and ethnicity very much continues into this period. They do it, of course, in the documents that don't get published, but in public record, in things that people will read, there's extraordinary attention and sensitivity to the language of race, even if not to racist practice. <coughs> the Stop Ricketts campaign is a wonderful example of how this works in action. First of all, the DHSS felt that it could not do this campaign by itself. It's a ministerial initiative um, by the new conservative government um, trying, to, uh, trying to create a new relationship with the medical profession. Um, Gerard Vaughan, who was the Minister of Health during this particular effort, he takes this on himself. But he doesn't feel the DHSS can do it itself. It has to bring in, via Save the Children, an ethnic nutritionist, um, and in fact a woman, who can run this campaign not only as its sort of public face, um, but also as someone who's going to be able to liaise with the local community groups who they feel very much will be the only way to access this inaccessible population. Um, a lot of debates come up, and I'm not going to go into all of them because I'm conscious of time. Uh, debates about who should be in charge. Should it be local? Should it be national? And of course, as is often the way in these cases, the national government uh, treads all over many local efforts that were reasonably successful and reasonably popular in an effort to sort of corral that force into something for which they can cynically take the credit. Um, the images are wonderful. I, I wish I could show all of them, but they're exceptionally beautiful, the pamphlets that are created for this particular population, because there's a sense in which um, there is some recognition that literacy in any language is a problem, and that therefore the images have to be captivating in order to be effective. Now, this doesn't take into account issues of generationality, the fact that you now, by the 1970s, have the emergence of a second generation born in Britain, for example, um, but nonetheless, it produces great pictures. 
1982, uh, as the campaign is scheduled to stop, but in fact ends up going into its second year, we hear a report on it in the BMJ. And I think this is a, a wonderful long quotation. I'm just going to point out a few aspects. Um, one is the rather um, dismissive or sort of diminishing way in which they talk about it. So success stories are sufficiently rare these days not to allow even quite a little one to pass unremarked. In other words, the public health of this particular population is a small problem. It's somewhat insignificant. But Gerard Vaughan is eager, is enthusiastic about this one anyway. Then we talk a little bit about the program for the BMJ's readership um, and the, the idea of tackling a wholly preventable disease. Well, those of you who are familiar with the BMJ and the Lancet in this period know that the idea of having a preventable disease that isn't prevented really, really gets up their noses. Um, so of all the immigrant communities, the Asians tend to be the most isolated, partly because they cling to their traditional social habits, which mean that women remain firmly within the family unit and simply do not know about diet deficiencies, and partly because of language problems. Apart from the communications, there's much praise for the fact that this campaign has actually tried to go through, in a very neo-imperial way, go through the local leadership and use them to, uh, to guide these populations into doing what the British want them to do anyway. It's extraordinarily familiar to people who read the, the colonial medical literature. Um, the tr it's, it's brought a lot of other illnesses to light, including active TB and various dietary and malnutrition problems. Well, one question is, why is active TB not being brought to light anyway, considering the massive you know, public health efforts that are possible but are not, in fact, taking place? Um, then they, they write, the trouble is that a diet suitable to the Indian subcontinent simply does not contain the vitamins and oils needed in Britain's climate. And the campaign helps people understand what changes they must make. So we can see where the onus of change is. It is not on uh, changes to medical practice. It is not on changes to DHSS policy. It is on the people who have the problem making the changes. This is not, I would not argue at all, exclusive to the DHSS response to ethnic populations. They would very much like all of us to take considerably more individual responsibility for ourselves and stop pestering them with our terrible problems. Um, however, it is particularly clear and particularly marked in relation to populations who are viewed as unhealthily standing out. Um, Dr. Vaughan also cites the Gravesend campaign. These campaigns were local. They went to different areas at different times, and uh, the latest one had been Gravesend. Like the others, it consisted of coordinating all the relevant information and enlisting the help of community leaders in seeing that it reaches the right people. As an example of how a little can go a long way, it cost all of 250 pounds. And this is the other point to make, is that we are talking about really successful penny pinching. We can have a whole national campaign reliant largely on the resources of, an, of a largely poor and under, underserved community, and you know the DHSS only has to put 250 pounds in the pot. And the the degree to which every cost is, is whittled down and niggled away in the department is, is very, very striking across this whole campaign. So do we need to have three colors in the printing? Can't we just have two? And I'll just flip back to remind you of the different approach taken during the war period. We have plenty of color here. This is a, I mean, it's a graphically beautiful poster um, to try and capture attention. That, that was not the case in this public health campaign. And of course, you know, Times have changed, and necessity as well, but it's, it's worth keeping in mind. Oops. Um, 
Okay, so this campaign is regarded as a success. Uh, it's given another year because it still had £70,000 left of its budget anyway, so it's allowed to fund itself for an additional year. Um, however, although it is popular in the areas to which it went, it's not particularly successful. They try to study this. There's, a, there's an effort a year, uh, so immediately after the, the campaign, they test local knowledge about vitamin D deficiency. A year later, they go back to an area that had a campaign and test that knowledge again, whilst also testing the knowledge of a group that had no campaign. First of all, this assumes, of course, that all of these communities are completely isolated, um, which is, as, as we know, completely false in every way. Um, they're not isolated from each other, whether they're isolated from the British community or not. Um, and in fact, the results are not particularly, yes, after uh, the campaign, immediately after the campaign, there was greater local knowledge about vitamin D deficiency. However, in fact, a year later, the differences between the control group and the sample group were virtually uh, insignificant. Um, in addition, of course, uh, as, as those of you working in public health know, knowledge and action are completely different animals and have to be assessed separately. Um, at the same time, specialists were campaigning very, very hard for a really different approach. Biochemists, uh, specialist biochemists and metabolic clinicians had been in many ways colonized by the ethnic populations they study and were responding to local calls for fortification. And they become advocates for efforts to fortify or to supplement to provide the much more expensive and, and in some ways nationally more uh, difficult approaches that had been used in World War II to this new smaller population. Um, and they argue that not only have these, uh, these efforts been proven effective, but they're much more popular with patients because they don't require the change of diets and habits that are, in fact, on a larger scale, quite healthy. Um, and, and that, therefore, they're more likely to be successful and they're more fair. Uh, however, these calls are very much resisted by the DHSS. Um, Three months after the article that I just had up in 1982, at the end of the, the first wave of the campaign, Vaughan is pushed out of the DHSS to consumer affairs minister in a very forceful uh, social services reshuffle. He's replaced by Ken Clark. Um, the BMJ responds to this by saying, ah, it could, it could be now that it will be the patient's rather than the doctor's point of view that will prevail. And what immediately happens is the trailing of an alternative campaign uh, that's going to provide free vitamin D supplements to Asian adolescents, the elderly, and my favorite, those who practice seclusion. Um, and it's extensively trailed. It doesn't happen, to my knowledge, anywhere. But there was this idea, this is what the patients want. We're sick of placating the medical profession with their calls for things. Um, so we're going to try another approach. And an election is coming. So in, in sort of in conclusion, and to wrap this up before questions, actually, I'll go back to that quote. There are some real problems in this period and in looking at all of the diseases I cover in that, you know, as, as is always the case with the history of medicine, you have to tangle with the really real. So in the same way that smallpox created its own color bar by only being prevalent and only being likely to come from nations which also happen to have brown populations, uh, you have the problems of tuberculosis and its disease color bar. And you have the question of rickets. Is it metabolic? Well, it is obviously metabolic. Is it dietary, though? Is it behavioral? Is it to do with race? You know, is it to do with the color of skin? And still today, of course, these arguments are continuing. There's no sense in which we really understand what factors produce rickets explicitly in the Asian population, 
not in the African Caribbean or uh, populations of African origin. Why is this the case? It's, is it skin? Is it genetics? Etc. But that's where the efforts are going. The efforts are going in research terms to tracing the molecular, the genetic, and the biochemical. They're not going into research on what strategies are going to be most effective to treat this population uh, in, in ways that will, that will solve their disease. It's not a complicated disease. I mean, cod liver oil is not exactly either expensive or hard to come by. Um, so why isn't it working? And you could say exactly the same thing about TB. It is curable, it is preventable, and yet it is still with us. Thank you very much. Thank you.